0: Of the four New Testament Gospels, the book of John is... well, it's different. Like Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it presents a retelling of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. But John is notably distinct in what it emphasizes, and what it includes, and what it leaves out, in the order and structure of its account, and in the image of Jesus it constructs. One of the early Church Fathers, Clement of Alexandria, famously characterized the differences between the Gospel narratives in this way. Matthew, Mark, and Luke wrote down the bodily things, the physical facts, whereas John, who was encouraged by his pupils and irresistibly moved by the Spirit, wrote a spiritual gospel. In this teaching series, we'll explore John's distinctive spiritual gospel, and along the way, we will reacquaint ourselves with his overtly theological retelling of Jesus, the Word made flesh, the Lamb of God, the Savior of the world. This is the spiritual gospel.
1: Here we are. Uh, Gospel of John. We have been studying the Gospel of John for quite some time now, and we are making some headway. Uh, I'll actually talk more about this, but we're we're coming up to a major turn in the scope of the book. And Actually, I'd like to focus on some of the things that we haven't uh, focused on before up to this point, namely that the author of the book of John is structuring his book according to certain signs. In the first half of the book, in fact, he has seven signs that are sort of uh, the framework for Jesus's ministry. Now these are by far not the only signs or miracles that Jesus does, but for some reason, the author of John is really highlighting a handful of these works to show what Jesus is about, and also to put the readers and the audience into a nice frame of reference where what was on the table for the early audiences was figuring out who Jesus was. And these seven signs were attempting to give uh, some demonstration of Jesus, particularly as you think about last week, Jesus and his relationship with God the Father. Jesus himself says, I and the Father are one. He makes some claims of himself, or at least the author does early on, and we see how those things play out in the uh, early chapters of the book or the first half of the book. For example, we have Jesus' first miracle done in Cana where he turns the water into wine. Uh, Very shortly thereafter, we have Jesus cleansing the temple. He goes into the temple, sees what's happening in the courts and overturns the tables because of certain money practices that were happening, ways that uh, the powers that be were attempting to prey on uh, folks going to the temple to buy sacrifices. Jesus is pretty ticked about this. In fact, he says, you've turned my Father's house into a den of thieves and overturned some tables. We see a pretty distinct picture of Jesus here that we might not have in the forefront of our thinking as we're continuing to contemplate who Jesus is. Neat little side note for you. This is actually gonna come up as we go. In John's Gospel, this is one of the first things that happens, this is in chapter two. In the Synoptic Gospels, which are what, three books? Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they're called synoptics because they're pretty similar in their structure, although at times they do disagree with one another, and John is just crazy. Uh, John thinks this story is so important that he puts it in the beginning, as if to say, in order to understand Jesus, you have to understand the temple cleansing. This was the type of person that Jesus was. For the synoptic authors, this event is near the end of Jesus's life, actually, and some people would even say that when he's overturning the tables, and think about this, He's making some enemies for himself and he's doing so in a very public way. So a lot of scholars would say this is like the, the pin in, in the pin cushion that leads to Jesus' death. Most uh, historians would say there's no way on earth that this happened in the beginning of his ministry because if it did, he'd be dead. So the synoptics are putting it at the end of Jesus's ministry and John as a stylistic choice is putting it in the front as if to say again, this is the picture of Jesus that I'm giving to you and this is how you have to understand him. And the author also says this is one of the signs for us to understand Jesus's ministry and how he is related to the Father and those sorts of things. We also have Jesus healing uh, the royal official's son, he's healing the lame man who had been laying beside the pool there for quite some time, waiting for the waters to stir and didn't have anyone to put him into the waters so that he could be healed, or at least that was the thought, and Jesus shows up and and helps him along. Uh, Jesus and the feeding of the 5,000 and Jesus and the man born blind, who Jesus allows to have sight. So these are the first six signs in John's gospel that, again, are teaching us something about who Jesus is, and John is making a big deal about them. This was the first sign, this was the second sign, this was the third sign. And we haven't really focused on that until tonight because as we turn the corner, we reach the final sign of Jesus' ministry, at least his miraculous ministry with the raising of Lazarus. Now I imagine that most of you are somewhat familiar with this story and if you're not, here's the Cliff Notes version of this story. Basically, Jesus has some friends In Bethany, Bethany is a town two miles east of Jerusalem. This gets kind of confusing because Jesus is also in Bethany when he hears about this, but this is a different Bethany. So he would have to travel down back to Jerusalem to meet with his friends, Mary and Martha and Lazarus. And the note that Jesus gets is from Mary and Martha saying, Lazarus, the one that you love is sick. And you can read into this, Lazarus might not make it. You need to be here now in order to do something about this. And as we find out, Jesus stalls that trip down to Bethany, stays where he is for a couple of days, and this makes some sense as we unfold this narrative, but for now I'm gonna keep you in suspense. This is a brilliant pedagogical tactic where I'm just kind of (laughs) holding you at bay. So Jesus, he stalls the trip, he goes down and finally he, he, he reaches Bethany and upon arrival, he meets with Martha. Martha, supposedly the more practical uh, kind of task-driven of the two sisters. This is a bad picture, uh, but it's a picture that we usually have accepted in our minds. Um, but Martha goes to Jesus and has this, this really neat interchange that we'll unpack probably next week where she's wondering why Jesus didn't show up. And then everything really hits the fan when Martha tells Mary that Jesus is in town and Mary goes to Jesus and we have this classic line about Jesus being moved to tears. A couple of times in this story, Jesus has moved to tears. And, and most often we just relate that to, look how human Jesus is. There's a lot more going on uh, with that. But basically, Jesus is interacting with the sisters, the people that he is friends with, the people that he loves, and they're asking him, Why weren't you here? What's going on? What's going to happen? And Jesus says, Basically, just hang with me. Wait a second. Hold on. But even seeing Mary, he's just moved with compassion, moved to tears. But finally, he's placed outside of the tomb a tomb where Lazarus has been laying for four days now. Some Jewish scholars make a big deal about this because there was some thought, and you can take this for what it's worth, some thought that the soul stayed close to the body for the first three days of death, but then on the fourth day of death, the spirit just goes Elsewhere, so some people have said on the fourth day Lazarus was really really dead He wasn't just sort of dead He was like he didn't have his spirit hanging out close to his body anymore You can take that for what it is if that heightens the the impact of the story for you Then maybe tuck it away and and hold on to that, but Jesus shows up and he says roll the stone away Some people would say that these things make us think that Mary and Martha and Lazarus are, are pretty well off We also learn very quickly that Mary in the next chapter will anoint Jesus' feet with a really expensive ointment. And the fact that Lazarus is laid in a tomb that has a, a big stone in front of it kind of insinuates that they have some means Uh, and if you look at Jesus' whole crew, it really ranges from top to bottom as far as class structure goes, and perhaps Mary, Martha, and Lazarus are on the top of this, but Jesus shows up and he says, roll the stone away, and my main woman, Martha, says, oh no, you cannot do that. It will smell too bad. And I'll probably say this for the next three weeks as we talk about Lazarus, but in the King James Version, it says, oh no, he stinketh. (laughs) Which I just think is a pretty classic line. If you have a life verse that you need to assign to yourself, maybe go with that, you know. But the stone gets rolled away, and Jesus says, Lazarus, get on out of there. Um, After praying to the Father, he says, Lazarus, come on out, and he does. He kind of stumbles out still in his grave clothes. With the the face napkin as well, which is the same word for Jesus's face napkin later on. Never never used the word face napkin out loud, but I've used it twice now, and it it still feels weird. But you know what I mean, like the face the face covering. Uh, Lazarus has one, and Jesus has one, and there's lots of precursors between Jesus and his life, death, and resurrection, and here Lazarus and his resurrection from the dead, or his resuscitation from the dead, I guess you could say. And this is the story of Lazarus, and because we're so removed from it, and because some of you have spent a lot of your time in Christian circles and communities. It's kind of lost some of its luster and lost some of its, its meaning and its power. And I hope to recapture at least some of that for you guys tonight, because as Marianne May Thompson says, in a nutshell, this narrative, it recounts how Jesus's love for one of his own overcomes the power of death. In a very um, pointed way, this story is foreshadowing Our salvation, it's foreshadowing the lengths to which Jesus Himself will go to overcome the power of death, namely by surrendering Himself to it. It has helped me over the last few years to begin to think, and I almost even changed the line in the song tonight, but I felt that would be uh, disingenuous to the people that wrote it, to think about sin with a capital S and death with a capital D, like these entities, as Paul would in, uh, instruct us to think about, like they're, it's not just your personal sin or your upcoming death, but these powers that have some claim over the world and Jesus is, is going to war against them and overcoming them and demonstrating victory, which is so beautiful and powerful and we see some of that in this story where he rolls up to the tomb and despite Martha saying, he stinketh, Jesus says, get out, death has no power here. I'm telling you to come out of the grave and I hope that we haven't lost all of that power. Now thinking through the structure of the book as I mentioned a little bit uh, earlier, and I apologize if this sermon is a bit haphazard, I'm trying to do something different this week. We do see that the author of John John begins the gospel with a prologue, this is a theological prologue to to sort of set the the framework for what he's about to do. And then for the first half of the book he has these book of signs with these seven sign acts that, that we have talked about already. And then we turn the corner in chapter 13 to either the book of glory or the book of the passion. This is where Jesus starts to set his eyes towards the cross, at least in the book of John. You could say that the, the author of John is setting Jesus' eyes towards the cross and structuring this. So in the first half, we have all of these signs that are attempting to show us who Jesus is. And in the second half of the book, he is going about the work that God has given him to do to overtake capital S sin and capital D death and bring them down in a beautiful show of power and victory to allow us to have life and hope. And as you are sitting there, don't lose that. Because that's the very core of what it is that we believe to be true. Now tonight, as we go through the first 16 or so verses of John 11, I'm gonna have some commentary to help us understand what these verses are doing. Now you know the whole story of of Jesus raising Lazarus. Now we're gonna focus in on a handful of verses because I wanna take us to a place that you might not have been before. And namely, what I'm going to do is I'm going to lower my shoulder a little bit and push against the door of how we have understood faith and Christianity, and what it is that we have signed up for. And I do think that by the end of it, it might be a touch uncomfortable. Because really what we seem to have done is we've taken Jesus and reduced him to a cliché. We've taken Jesus and reduced him to... a. Pillow cushion or a t shirt or a mug with eagles over a sunset. That's so beautiful and gets you inspired for the day, but it doesn't really help you to understand who Jesus is. One scholar, James Cohn, would actually say that what we have done is we've lost the power of the cross and we've traded that in for a trinket on a necklace or earrings, and we have forgotten that this is actually. An implement of torture and execution. And we've softened that into something that it is completely not. Okay, so I want you just to stick with me and we'll go to that rousing conclusion there and we'll send you all off to go and be the hands and feet of Jesus in the world around you. Okay, this is John chapter 11, beginning in verse one. I'm reading from the Common English Bible. I'm sorry, I've been kind of jumping back and forth between stuff, but I think they really bring out some of the Just the the good storytelling that, that John has here in this chapter. It says, a certain man, Lazarus, was ill. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. Some people have really made a good bit about the fact that Lazarus seems to be placed underneath of Mary and Martha. This is their village and Lazarus is just a part of that. This is weird storytelling. All throughout John though, John seems to be giving a lot of um, play to women in Jesus' life and ministry and we see that even here, Mary and Martha uh, and their brother Lazarus. This is also the first time in John's Gospel that we hear about Mary and Martha. The side note here from the author is, this was the Mary who anointed the Lord with fragrant oil and wiped his feet with her hair. Her brother Lazarus was ill. So it's really focusing in on this person. And you can tell here that for the readers of this gospel, they would have had some background to this woman. This note would have meant something to them, like, oh, that Mary. It's helping them to to place this story in light of the larger tradition. Now, I want you to hold on to this because I'm gonna, I'm gonna mess with your brains here for a moment. Uh, verse three, it says, so the sisters sent word to Jesus saying, Lord, the one whom you love is ill. Before we get there, uh, this is the first time in John's Gospel that someone is described with this moniker, the one that Jesus loves. Okay. Some scholars have felt that that's important, even wondering if Lazarus could be the one who eventually writes the Gospel of John because later on we'll continue to meet someone known as the one whom Jesus loved and it's never named. Most scholars would think that it's better noted to be John, uh, but some people have played with this idea that maybe it's Lazarus. Okay. Now, this, this, not, this note here about Mary who anointed the Lord with fragrant oil and wiped his feet with her hair, this is a known tradition that people would have understood. Now, here's the problem. All throughout the Synoptic Gospels, we hear about these anointing stories, but they have different details in each one, more or less, This is the only time that Mary is the named woman who anoints Jesus' feet, and she's doing so in Lazarus' house or in her own house in Bethany. In Mark's version, it says that an unnamed woman anoints Jesus' head, not his feet, in Simon the leper's house, not in Lazarus' house. It's an unnamed woman who anoints Jesus' head in Simon the leper's house in Matthew 26. There's a couple of I believe there's a couple of differences between these stories, but here for the most part, uh, they're, they're pretty consistent. And then in Luke chapter seven, it's a sinful woman who anoints Jesus' head in Simon the Pharisee's house. And these we have all different details of the same sort of tradition that's happening here, which is, Important, I think, for us to at least note and then to be able to to extrapolate and say that what John is doing is different than what these other authors are doing and to push back and to wonder about why he's doing it in this way. Some scholars would say, well, there must be at least two different traditions of similar stories and other people would say that John is specifically naming Mary to be this this woman here from these other uh, accounts. I'm going to leave that there because Susie and I are going to tag team that in a couple weeks where we focus just on that story in John, chapter thir- uh, in John chapter 12, excuse me. It continues, when he heard this, namely when he heard that the one that he loves is ill, Jesus says this illness isn't fatal. It doesn't lead to death. It's for the glory of God so that God's son can be glorified through it. And you might begin to wonder, does this mean that Jesus is allowing Lazarus to die so that he can do a cool party trick and show everybody how great he is? I want you to hold on to that thought because the timing would suggest uh, otherwise. Now, Jesus loved Martha, her, her sister, and Lazarus. When he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed where he was. And after two days, he said to his disciples, let's return to Judea, Again, Now if you remember from last week, Jesus had been teaching and his teaching had caused such problems with the leaders that they started picking up stones to kill him. So him wanting to go back to this area would have put him right in the teeth of the leaders who wanted to kill him. And the the disciples are wondering if this is a wise move, but I wanna hang out here with this, uh, Jesus staying in this place for two days. You can think of the timing structure in this way. On the first day, Mary and Martha send a message to Jesus and it gets to him messenger, whoever it is, we don't know anything about him, has this message and goes and talks to Jesus and then Jesus decides to stay in the same place for two days and then on the fourth day, he travels and arrives in Bethany. So this is the structure in which Jesus learns about this happening, sits around for two days and then on the fourth day, he shows up because as I told you earlier, it says that when he did arrive, he found Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. In other words, Lazarus died here maybe shortly after the message was sent. When Jesus reads the message about his friend and the the particular ailment that he has, he's probably already gone. He still remains to camp out here and scholars have wondered why in the world that is. One scholar says very simply, what was Jesus doing? And you're all wondering, and I will tell you at least what he says about this. He says, from the rest of the story, I think that we can tell Jesus was praying. Here's the scenario. Jesus gets the message from someone that Mary and Martha are saying to him, Lazarus, your guy, one of your best friends, the one that you love, the one that you have this history with, he's nearing death. And Jesus immediately upon hearing this goes away to pray to figure out what it is that he must do. Because the way that we think about this story is Jesus has power and he can just go heal this person, right? And we don't necessarily think about the implications that that trip would make on Jesus himself, Remember this whole thing, the people that picked up the stones and wanted to kill him. The disciples, when they hear Jesus who wants to go back to Bethany, they say, Rabbi, the Jewish opposition wants to stone you. Don't go. Nobody in this crew of people is saying, Jesus, the best thing that we can do right now is go back to Bethany, which is, again, two miles away from Jerusalem, the epicenter of uh, Jewish religiosity. We need to go back there and help Lazarus, who will later be described as their friend too. The person that they're closest with, the disciples don't seem to be encouraging Jesus to go and to heal him because there's too much on the line. Which leads N.T. Wright again to further explicate what's going on. It says, he was praying for Lazarus, but he was also praying for wisdom and guidance as to his own plans and movements. Somehow the two, he says, were bound up together. What Jesus was going to do for Lazarus would be, on the one hand, a principal reason why the authorities would want him out of the way. This is like overturning the tables again. When you go and in public and you do these acts, It will most certainly lead to your death. You guys ever been in a situation, this is unplanned so I don't have anywhere that I'm going with this specifically, but have you ever been in a situation where you know if you say something or do something or respond in a certain way that it's gonna cost you something and you have to do a quick calculation as to whether or not that cost is worth it to you for you to get out here and say, I have something to say or do. You know those moments, this is what's happening for Jesus here, except he's taken a couple of days because if he goes down there and heals Lazarus, it's going to be a show and the religious leaders are going to pounce and end his life. Do not remove Jesus and his desire, let's see if this one works out, his desire for safety, and his desire for comfortability and his desire for maybe the status quo to be completely removed from him. Don't let Jesus be this entity that just floats around doing what God wants him to do with no internal struggle whatsoever. That would make no sense when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane saying, if there's any other way to do this, Dad, let's do that. Don't turn Jesus into one that doesn't have any sort of feelings about this. So you can imagine if, this is sheer speculation, but if Jesus is hanging out for a couple days praying, do I need to go? Is it time? Has the clock run up? Like, am I going to my my death to show victory over capital S sin and capital D death? Is that the time? Because he knows that if he does this, it's going to lead in that direction. But it would be, on the other hand, right, says, the most powerful sign yet, and this is the tension here. If I go and I raise this dude from the dead, that's gonna be good. People are gonna get on board with that, right? You'd have to think so. But on the other hand, I'll probably end up dying myself. This is the tension that is is working in Jesus' mind, potentially. It's the most powerful sign yet of what Jesus' life and work was all about and how it would reach its climactic resolution. Wright also pushes us farther because if Jesus was actually out praying, what happens is when he says, hey, let's roll the stone away, and Martha's like, no, don't do that, he stinketh, then Jesus launches into a prayer, and if you're a thoughtful audience, if you're about ready to tell someone who's dead to come out of a tomb, what might you be praying for? Lord, help me not to look like an idiot here. Why don't you show up and do something here in this moment? But what Jesus says instead is, thanks for hearing me. What, you talk, like, what do you mean hearing me? When? What? What was the conversation? He just says, thank you for hearing me. I'm glad that people are going to see how much power we have. Come on out. Like there is no request in Jesus's prayer at the tomb. It's already assumed that this time has been spent in prayer, at least that's what N.T. Wright is saying. So the, the disciples' conversation of Rabbi, the Jewish opposition, they want to stone you. Let's not do this. It makes sense, but Jesus has something more in mind that he is going to do. And he says something really esoteric and unhelpful. Aren't there 12 hours in a day? Whoever walks in the day doesn't stumble because they see the light of the world, but whoever walks in the night does stumble because the light isn't in them. And the disciples immediately say, so we're going? Or what, what are you talking about? Like he's saying that I am the light of the world. We've got a job to do. And no matter how dark it gets, follow me. It's going to get bad, but I need you guys to be with me on this. He continued, our friend Lazarus is sleeping, but I'm going in order to wake him up. Now, again, we, we, can, we can look at this idea of sleeping and death in the ancient world, uh, but the disciples, they're confused about this. They say, Lord, if he's sleeping, he'll get well. The verb there is he will be saved. He will be restored. And what they're thinking is, oh, he's on the mend He's just resting up so that he can get ready to go. Jesus says, our friend is sleeping. They read that as, he'll be okay. And they misunderstand what he is saying because they think that Jesus was talking about Lazarus being in a deep sleep, but Jesus had spoken about uh, Lazarus' death. In Roman and Greek mythology, sleep and death were personified as twins. They're joined at the hip. And all my twins say, I know what that's like. (laughs) Like these two things go together. So the disciples, we think that they're complete imbeciles, but let's throw them a bone here for a moment. Also, we have in the Gospel of Mark, this really cool story in Mark chapter five, where Jairus comes to advocate for his daughter and says to Jesus, my daughter, she's sick. She's close to death. Let's go do something about that. As a, uh, a, a temple official or religious leader like Jairus was taking a big leap to come out and to talk t- to Jesus. He's putting himself in a category here and Jesus says, let's go. On the way, a couple of things happen, but the, the thing I'd like you to think about is somebody shows up and says to Jairus, Jairus, it's too late, she's gone. And Jesus says, trust me. Keep believing in me. And as a dad, if I hear that one of my kids is is gone and that call from even Jesus himself to say, trust me, would be hard to get on board with. But they show up and Jesus says, she's not dead, friend. She's merely sleeping. And then, with the two most powerful words in the New Testament, Jesus says, Talitha Kum. Parents, babysitters, people that have spent time with children, if you have a, a little child sleeping, first of all, never wake them up. That is something you don't do. But if you must wake them up, oh, the, the timing on that. Yes, Lord? Imogen's like, I have something to say about this. Um, Jesus in this image, like Talitha Koum, which just means, little girl, it's time to wake up now. It's so powerful. And to me, like, this is such a beautiful image of maybe even death and into the resurrection because there's nothing, this is complete speculation, and I know that you guys probably have lots of thoughts about what happens to you after you die, but nothing would make me happier if at some point after my death, if the first thing that I hear is Jesus saying the Aramaic equivalent of little boy, wake up, which I don't know what it is off the top of my head, but he says that, which actually would be pretty confusing since I don't know what it is, and I'm you know, like, oh, that? what is happening, but if he just says, Little buddy, it's, t- it's time. Like I just, I, this image is so beautiful and powerful. And if it is the case that the disciples have seen this and know this when Jesus says that Lazarus is sleeping, perhaps they might have brought these sorts of circumstances into play, but Jesus makes it very clear to them, Lazarus, he's dead. You guys aren't getting it. He's not really asleep. He's gone. But we have work to do. And for your sakes, I'm glad I wasn't there so that you can believe Let's go. So here, Jesus is saying, we're gonna see something together. It's gonna shape us. It's gonna empower us. It's going to uh, move us to understand your power more um, clearly. And this is actually what happens with all of the signs in the first half of John's Gospel. But Jesus says very plainly, Lazarus is dead. Let's go to him. And then Thomas, which is where I want us to hang out. This is all, you can take that, Think about it, like meditate on it, whatever. This is what I want us to spend the rest of our time with, which admittedly will not be long. Then Thomas, the one called Didymus, said to the other disciples, now remember, after all this, we shouldn't go because if we go, he's gonna die. We shouldn't go because they're after his head. We need to stay here and camp out. And Jesus saying, what aren't there, 12 hours in the day? Let's go. We got light of the world, got stuff to do. And then finally, Thomas is led to say, Well, let us go too so that we may die with Jesus. Now, this is where the the common English Bible is taking a little bit of liberties because in the Greek it says that we may die with him. It could be Lazarus, it could be Jesus. But since they already know that Lazarus is dead, it's probably the case that they're thinking about Jesus. So I think this is a legitimate translation. I just would like to give you as much information as possible. (laughs) <laughs> Just to make sure we're all on the same page here. Let us go to so that we may die with Jesus. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks. Thanks. With a lot of commentary in between. Sort through the words and the, the not words. But this line here let us go to so that we may die with Jesus. What do you know about Thomas? Yeah. Yeah, it's probably that one famous thing. We don't hear a lot about this story where he actually has this shining moment of clarity even if he didn't quite grasp what he was saying and even if it didn't ultimately come to pass because uh, we, we see here, uh, according to Craig Keener, despite Thomas's apparent willingness to suffer death for the sake of Jesus, Jesus dies alone. And here I actually wanna distance ourselves from Keener. Yes, sort of. His disciples desert him. Jesus is not alone when he dies, especially in in John's Gospel, he's surrounded by his mom, his mom's sister, Mary the wife of Cleopas, I think is is the name there, and uh, and Mary Magdalene, I believe. So he's surrounded by people, and also he's having a conversation with the disciple that he loved. So he's not completely alone but Thomas is nowhere to be found. In fact, later on in in John's Gospel, Jesus says, a time is coming and it's here when each of you will be scattered to your own homes and you will leave me alone. Despite your protestations to the opposite, you will not be with me at the end because you will be scared because you will not be able to put your money where your mouth is, because you will not be able to drink the cup, as he says in other gospels, because you will not be able to count the cost and make the steps required of you. And we also know this story of of doubting Thomas. Even after Jesus has died and has shown himself to a handful of disciples, they say, we've seen Jesus. Thomas says, yeah, okay. I'll believe that when I see it and touch it. Right? So we have these pictures of, of Thomas where he has this, this clarity in this moment let us go too, so that we may die with Jesus. And it's just dripping with irony because that's not what happens. But before we get on Thomas's back and start pointing fingers, I'd like to demonstrate a little bit of irony for us as well. Because as we think about this, it makes me wonder about our desire to go where Jesus leads us to go if it costs us something. I got hammered for this even just this past week that sometimes when I talk in the room, I've got this really small group of people that I'm really talking to, People like me, people that have grown up in the church, people that maybe went to private school from kindergarten through 12th grade, people that know about veggie tales and uh, kitschy Christian culture that wore T-shirts with Reese's Cups on the front that says King of Kings instead of Reese's Cups. I don't know, I don't, or like the Coke classic formula, classic Jesus, whatever, like the Christiany stuff. I've lost everybody. Okay, let's bring it back. Let's bring it back. I'll post some stuff on Facebook tonight and Instagram just to, to let you guys know what I'm talking about here. But the gospel too that we know or that some of us know, it's a distortion of what actually is. Namely, the gospel that many of us have grown up with or come to accept is, you're sinful, you're broken. There was a, a problem in the world and Jesus fixed it. Believe in him and you'll be okay. Okay. Phrased another way, you're sinful, you're broken, Jesus came to fix that, maybe even his dad was real mad at you because you're so broken and so sinful that Jesus had to step in and take everything that you deserved, and if you just believe in him, you'll be okay. There's a big difference, side note, between that gospel and the capital S sin and the capital D death where Jesus comes to punch that in the face. Not you. And Jesus' dad doesn't want to punch him in the face either. This is like a a, a team in concert that's attempting to get the world rid of these things that are, are vying for our attention and our allegiance. But basically at the core of what we, many of us, have accepted is this lie that if we believe in Jesus, then... If you just place your hope in, if you just sign this card, if you just then, and it could be heaven that you're waiting for. It could be something in the future that you're waiting for. It could be financial security that you're waiting for. It could be the resolve of all your problems that you're waiting for. It could be the relational things that are happening to you that you're waiting for. But the gospel as we know it isn't really the one that's on the pages of the New Testament. The gospel, and I don't really like how I frame this here, but the gospel as it is pushes back against that sort of consumeristic, what's in it for me gospel. Because when you read Jesus and you see what he's about in the New Testament, he doesn't say, hey guys, just hang out with me and everything will be cool. He says, hey guys, we gotta go to Bethany and I might die. And then Thomas says, well, let's go with him. And if it's good enough for Jesus, I guess we'll die too. The gospel as it is in the pages of the New Testament is a call to follow Jesus. And he doesn't lead us to comfortability. He doesn't lead us to ease. He doesn't lead us to a life divorced of problems. He just says, follow me, because we have work to do. And when you participate with me, and start to bring some of the problems in the world into order in my name, then that's the way that we should be living. It's a call to follow Jesus. It's a call to pick up our crosses, not the trinkets on your necklaces or earrings or your tattoos, the implements of your own execution. Pick up your cross and drag it wherever you go not to show people how Christian you are and how much you don't cuss anymore or look at porn anymore or fill in the blank with your pet sins anymore. It's pick this up and go where Jesus is calling you to go and do what he is asking you to do because that might cost your life. It's a call to come and die. Now, just so that we don't get lost in this spot here, because this, the last five minutes, that's been a pretty big downer, right? <laughs> like, go and be blessed. Um, N.T. writes again, says, there's a great deal that we don't understand, and our hopes and plans often get thwarted. But if we go with Jesus, even if it's into the jaws of death, we will be walking in the light. Whereas if we press ahead arrogantly with our own plans and ambitions, we are bound to trip up. Even if we walk into the jaws of death. I have no idea what that looks like for you where you are. But I know that Thomas wasn't too far off. Let's go with him even if we must die. I don't think that the answer to this is that we complicate things and we end up being huge jerks in public so that people will be mad at us and then we say, ah yes, I must be following Jesus. Mm -hmm. But I do hope that our life is not driven by fear, that our life is not driven by our, our convenience, that our life and our decisions are not driven by complacency and the fact that we're okay at some time out there, instead, how about we become like Thomas and say, Jesus, wherever you're going, even if it's leading us straight into the jaws of death, we will go with you. Practical application, and then we're done. You know those moments you have when you start counting the costs and you think about, like, if I do something here, that's going to be, that's going to end up bad for me. I'd like you to begin to maybe start putting those in, in a Christian context and maybe start thinking, is Jesus compelling me to say or do something on behalf of my neighbor Is Jesus compelling me to say or do something because that's what would demonstrate love and commitment to him? What does it look like for me to carry the implements of my execution in this moment? I know that it doesn't leave you guys with like peaches and cream, but I am convinced that when we live in this way, that we are living in a good and right way to become agents of hope and peace and love and forgiveness right here and right now. Let us go too, even if we die with Jesus.
0: Thanks for listening to this week's teaching from the Restoration Project. If you live in the Salisbury area, we invite you to join us for one of our weekly services on Sunday evenings at 5.30 p.m., Whatever your story, there's room for you here. If you'd like more information on TRP, please visit our website at www.restoresby.org. And for previous sermons, check out our SoundCloud page at www.soundcloud.com forward slash restore SBY or subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or Stitcher. See you next week.